0: Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is the second-to-last episode in our ongoing series, MGM Stories. Today's episode, like every episode in this series— was suggested by a listener on our forum, which you can find at youmustrememberthispodcast.com. Today's listener, Melissa, told us more about her idea. Elizabeth Taylor is such an icon, and the fact that she had many famous loves is widely known. However, I'd love to hear your take on how those relationships connected to her stardom in Hollywood at that time. Looking forward to hearing about it. Thanks. Thanks, Melissa. Thanks, Melissa. Elizabeth Taylor is one star who I feel like has always been with me. One of my earliest memories is of seeing her on TV talking about AIDS after the death of Rock Hudson. I'm not sure what the first movie of hers I saw was, but Butterfield 8 was the first Elizabeth Taylor movie that I ever sought out to watch, and I chose it because when I was a teenager, I, for some reason, thought performances that won Oscars were performances that had to be seen. Only later did I learn that Liz hated this movie, that she thought it was a mockery of all of the terrible things that were being said about her in the press after her affair with Eddie Fisher broke up Fisher's marriage to Debbie Reynolds, and that it was widely believed that she won the Oscar for Butterfield 8 as a pity vote. But it's reductive to dismiss the movie and Taylor's performance in it. Taylor was one of the last stars to enjoy the fruits of the MGM machine at its peak, And Butterfield 8 was her final film under contract to that studio, and it marks a turning point in more ways than one. Today we'll explain how Elizabeth Taylor got to that turning point, by focusing on the period in the late 1950s when Taylor took her third husband, became a widow, became a homewrecker, almost died, won her first Oscar, and finally... Broke free of the studio that had dictated her life and career since she was 11 years old. That studio, of course, was MGM. Join us, won't you, for the story of Elizabeth Taylor's life and loves at MGM. Elizabeth Taylor's mother, Sarah, loved Louis B. Mayer, and not just because of what he could do to advance her daughter's career. Some observers, most notably Ava Gardner, believed Sarah Taylor and Louis B. Mayer had an affair. Whatever was going on between her mom and her boss, Liz found the studio chief unpalatable. He looked rather like a gross, thick penguin, Taylor said. He had huge glasses and a way of looking at you that made you feel completely squashable. You felt his vitality, but you also felt his enormous arrogance, his ego, his overbearing, driving personality. To know him was to be terrified of him. But she didn't always act afraid. Famously, as a teenager, Liz once got so fed up listening to Mayer berate her mother that she told the mogul that both he and his studio could go to hell, and then she stormed out of his office and refused to go back in to apologize. But Taylor always held on to a certain admiration for the way, as she put it, L.B. Mayer and MGM created stars out of tinsel, cellophane, and newspapers. Elizabeth had been signed to MGM in 1943 because the studio was in need of a young girl actress with a British accent for a small role in Lassie Come Home. Taylor became a star the following year at the age of 12, playing the improbably named Velvet in National Velvet, a massive hit about a girl and her horse. After National Velvet opened to big business in 1944, Elizabeth Taylor would never live the life of a civilian again, But arguably, she didn't really become Elizabeth Taylor until 1950, when she starred opposite Montgomery Clift in George Stevens' A Place in the Sun. We talked about this film and Taylor's relationship with Clift in the 20th episode of You Must Remember This, so we're going to skip that stuff today. But if you want a fuller chronological version of the story, you can go back and listen to episode 20 now. For our purposes here, it's important to note that while Paramount's A Place in the Sun made Liz's transition from child star to adult sex symbol complete, MGM was working strenuously on their part of that transformation for a good year before Taylor was even cast in Stevens's film. MGM was in total control of her social life. She had never done any typical activity of youth that wasn't pre arranged as a studio photo op. When she was 16, it was decided that it was time for the public to start seeing Taylor as a romantic object on screen and off, which meant that she had to start dating. Glenn Davis, a young football star and military hero, was selected as Taylor's first public paramour. When Davis was shipped off to Korea, Taylor was put through the paces of a public romance with William Pauley Jr., an aviation heir who was 28 to Liz's 17. During the shooting of A Place in the Sun, there were staged dates with Clift and a host of other young men recruited for the purpose. Then MGM called Taylor back from Paramount so that she could play the bride opposite Spencer Tracy's father in Father of the Bride. In 1950, Spencer Tracy was as close to a stand-in for the average middle-aged American man as existed in Hollywood, and MGM wanted to make sure Elizabeth was embraced by the nation as for lack of a less creepy way to put it, every daddy's little girl. This meant she had to get married in real life. And so Liz soon found herself engaged to Conrad Nikki Hilton Jr., the 22-year-old heir to the hotel empire. MGM put 15 seamstresses on the case of creating Taylor's beaded wedding dress, At the cost of $3,500, Liz's place of employment also provided a custom-made white negligee and slippers for the wedding night. MGM set the seating chart for the ceremony, making sure every actor who had ever played Liz's parents on screen were seated together alongside her real parents. The couple's bliss began to sour on their European honeymoon, where Liz was bombarded by fans and Nicky decided his new wife was, quote, a fucking bore and sought solace in liquor and gambling. Nick kind of got a kick out of beating the shit out of me, Elizabeth would say later. By the time Taylor's next movie, called Love is Better Than Ever, was in production, Taylor and Hilton had separated, and finally they divorced in 1952. Though the official story was that Hilton preferred gambling to spending time with his wife, Taylor took the blame in much of the press— which suggested that she had let down not just America, but more importantly, MGM. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet, and I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases, from M&A rumors to celebrity stylist Dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck, available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. A year later, Liz was married to British actor Michael Wilding. It's unclear what role MGM played in arranging this marriage, but they certainly did use it to their advantage. Liz's contract was about to expire in late 1951, and though she contemplated leaving the studio and starting her own independent production company, in the end, Liz re-upped with MGM, who also signed Wilding. Sensing opportunism on Wilding's part for more than one reason, gossip columnist Hedda Hopper had tried to stop the marriage from happening. She sat Liz and Wilding down and gave them a lecture in which she implied that Elizabeth's new groom and his friend, Stuart Granger, were more than friends. But Liz told Michael not to worry about Hedda. By the time Liz was shooting Giant in Marfa, Texas, three years later, she had given birth to two sons sired by Wilding, and she was bored. Wilding apparently wasn't. In the middle of Giant's production... Confidential magazine ran a story about what Liz's husband was doing while his wife was away, apparently befriending burlesque dancers, and inviting them back to the home he shared with his movie star wife for late-night pool parties. Confidential was in the process of changing the gossip game. For the first time, the kinds of things that MGM publicity gurus were paid to suppress were making it into print, and there was little legal recourse. Confidential claimed they refused to run any story unless they had two signed affidavits from their sources. The dissolution of Taylor's marriage to Wilding can be tracked along the lines of two Confidential articles. The one in the November 1955 issue about Mike's pool party with the strippers and the one in the July 1956 issue in which Liz Taylor allegedly referenced the previous confidential story when Wilding found her in a Moroccan hotel room with Victor Mature. Remember that strip teaser you had in my house and how silly you looked at 6 a.m. dancing around with her G-string on your head? Liz allegedly asked her husband. Well, Snookums, you look just as silly now. So close the door before mama catches cold. By the time that story ran, Liz had already met the man who would become her third husband. In fact, some reports suggest husband number three was responsible for planting the Victor Mature story in Confidential. Michael Todd had started the company that promoted Cinerama, a 70 millimeter widescreen filming process that required three projectors and a curved screen for exhibition. This was a complicated process, and only specially-equipped theaters could show the movies the way they were intended to be seen, so eventually Todd left Cinerama behind and started his own 70mm company, called Todd A.O. The first Todd A.O. film to hit theaters was Oklahoma, which had been a major hit in 1955. In mid-1956, Todd was readying the release of Around the World in 80 Days, which would make his name as a producer by grossing more than any other picture that year aside from The Ten Commandments, and by winning the Best Picture Oscar. Elizabeth was awaiting the release of Giant and embarking on Raintree County, an epic which MGM was hoping would be the new Gone with the Wind, but which barely survived a troubled production that encompassed the car accident which would disfigure co-star Montgomery Clift's face. That story, too, is covered in our previous Elizabeth Taylor episode, so let's skip past it. In the summer of 1956, while the shooting of Raintree County was on pause so that Clift could recover from his accident, Liz started having an affair with Michael Todd. I've read reports suggesting that Liz was attracted to Todd because Todd was enormously wealthy—reports which make Liz out to be a spoiled, jewel-hungry bitch— I'm not saying she wasn't spoiled, jewel-hungry, or sometimes kind of a bitch, but let's look at where she was coming from. Liz had been married for the past four years to Michael Wilding, an actor whose stature in Hollywood was much lower than Liz's, and their discrepancy in pay was commensurate. Taylor was expected to live large as one of Hollywood's biggest stars, and as someone who didn't remember not being famous, she didn't know any other kind of lifestyle. But she had also personally footed the bill for every indulgence she and her husband had enjoyed when they were Mr. and Mrs. Wilding. And she now had two kids. And she was only 24 years old. She was under a lot of pressure and had a lot of responsibility. Not only could Michael Todd help alleviate Liz's financial burden, but he was thought to be on the cusp of a big career— not just as a producer, but as a technological innovator who was ushering in solutions to help the movie industry survive the threat posed by television. One of these solutions was to use television. While every studio in town was approaching the promotional opportunities presented by television warily and even blacklisting TV actors, Todd embraced TV as a way to put stars in the living rooms of potential ticket buyers, thus forging a more personal connection than ever before. Michael Todd could buy Liz jewels, yes, but he also represented security and a plan for facing the future. In fact, Mike Todd's wealth was mostly an illusion. When he had cash, he spent it as quickly as it came in, and most of his lavish lifestyle, including the private plane which he named after Liz and bragged was the only one in the world to house a double bed, was floated on credit. But Liz didn't know that and neither did the general public. Giant and Around the World in 80 Days were both enormous hits, making Liz and Mike the perfect power couple for 1957. She was the most beautiful woman in the world and the queen of Hollywood. His seemingly infinite wealth meant that the MGM contract that she felt stifled by didn't have to be a prison. Liz liked the trappings of movie stardom more than she liked starring in movies. With Mike Todd on her team... Who cared if MGM dropped her? She could still live like a star as long as she could afford it. They married in February in Mexico, two days after her divorce from Wilding was finalized, by which time Liz was already about three months pregnant with Todd's daughter, Liza. Liz had given Michael Wilding all of her savings to go away quickly and quietly. Todd had two best men at the ceremony, Mexican singer-actor Kenton Floss, who had starred in Around the World in 80 Days, and Todd's friend, the singer and TV star, Eddie Fisher. Fisher brought along his wife, Debbie Reynolds, to round out the wedding party. Liz took a full year off from acting after finishing Raintree County. Pregnancy gave her an excuse, but she was also enjoying the jet-set lifestyle of being a rich guy's arm candy. The press was full of reports that she might never go back to work, and she was quoted as saying things like, I've been an actress for 15 years. Now I want to be a woman. But of course, this might have been MGM's spin to explain why their biggest female star wasn't working. Wilding was himself a savvy manipulator of the media, and he understood that movie stars were not only the only women in America who could have it all, but that they were expected to. So even as he was using Elizabeth's commitment to appear in his next film as the lure for investment capital, he would also make statements like, there's no such thing as a happy actress, but I think I know a girl who's going to be a happy housewife. The gossip columns were full of stories about the jet-set couple's wedded bliss until four months after the wedding, when a photographer for Britain's The Daily Mail captured Mr. and Mrs. Todd arguing over a missed flight at Heathrow. Debbie Reynolds reported that Liz and Mike could move in a flash from physically raging at one another to making up with equal fervor. She remembered being at the Todd's house for dinner one night when her hosts suddenly started fighting. When Mike hit Elizabeth... A stunned Debbie jumped on Mike's back to try to restrain him. Suddenly, everyone turned on me, Debbie later wrote. Eddie accused me of being naive. Mike told me that Elizabeth could take it. I honestly thought he was hurting her, but Elizabeth told me to stop being a Girl Scout. How did this turn into something I did wrong? I didn't know that this was foreplay for Mike and Elizabeth. Hilton had been aggressive but not loving. Wilding had been too passive. Mike Todd was just right. As Liz herself described the relationship, we have more fun fighting than most people do just making love. By the time Liz gave birth to Liza on August 6, 1957, she would have preferred to never go back to work at MGM. Her own husband was the buzziest movie producer in town, and if she worked for him, it would be on her terms. She would have a kind of freedom she had never known as property of MGM, which treated her very well as their top star, but still made enormous demands on her time. They had managed to push Liz through eight films in the five years since she had re-upped her contract with them. And many of those films were epics like Giant and Raintree County, with long, exhausting location shoots and grueling publicity requirements. Her time was not her own, and sometimes it seemed like her body was protesting for her. One of a number of Taylor illnesses which caused delays on Giant was a vein inflammation syndrome caused by the tight horse-riding pants she wore in the film. As Liz recovered from childbirth, her husband was on the phone with MGM constantly, trying to negotiate Taylor's exit from the studio. The studio was demanding two more movies. With talks at an impasse, Todd brought in Kurt Frings to serve as Taylor's new agent. The German Frings represented Marlon Brando and Lucille Ball. He was a drinking and poker buddy of Todd's, and he was known not to fuck around. Frings was able to get MGM to understand that they needed Liz more than she needed them and made sure that she was paid to make Cat on a Hot Tin Roof accordingly. Three weeks into shooting Cat, Mike flew on his private plane, the Liz, from Los Angeles to New York. The small plane had been allowed to take off, even though there was too much baggage on board, rendering it technically overweight Two hours after taking off from Burbank, the Liz flew into heavy turbulence. The wings iced over. About 40 minutes later, the plane went down into the night. Only when the sun came up and the wreckage was visible spreading out over an acre, 80 miles outside of Albuquerque, did anyone understand that the plane must have nosedived and exploded on contact with the ground. Publicity was a major part of Elizabeth Taylor's marriage to Mike Todd, and they both played their part in selling the public an image of their love. But that didn't mean that Liz didn't really love her husband. It didn't mean that she wasn't crushed by his death. Never one to have trouble with her appetite, for a long time after Todd's crash, Liz couldn't eat. She could drink, and when her friends found out she had been mixing vodka with pills— They managed to take away her pills. Liz herself would later forward the narrative that Mike Todd had been the love of her life. She'd say that if he hadn't died, they might still be together. Which, of course, would mean no on-again-off-again marriage-divorce-remarriage to Richard Burden. No Betty Ford Center romance with Larry Fretensky. And no Eddie Fisher. It took three weeks, but Elizabeth pulled herself together and returned to the set of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof to finish the film. She had lost so much weight since Mike's death that director Richard Brooks forced her to really eat real food for a dinner scene, and put Taylor through multiple takes just to make sure she got the equivalent of a full meal. In the finished film, you can't notice a discrepancy between what Liz shot before Todd's death and what she shot after, physically or otherwise. But maybe that's because the whole performance is a standout within the context of a film that otherwise has trouble transcending its stage roots and in the context of a career, Taylor's, which to that point had really mostly consisted of love interests, sexual objects, and silly little girls. Maggie the cat is, to some extent, all of those things, but she's also desperate and pained. She has real human wants and needs and problems, and there's no easy way out of any of them but she's determined to prevail. Grace Kelly was the original choice for the part, but compromised as the film was by the need to appease the production code censors while still delivering the message that Paul Newman's love for his male best friend has caused everybody on screen's problems, it's impossible to imagine the film actually working without Taylor's unique sexuality, which was at once intimidating and mothering. The perfect combination of mother and horror. But maybe even that wouldn't have been as effective as it is if you didn't believe it totally when this incomparably beautiful woman talks about how lonely she is and what it feels like to feel alone when you're with the man who's supposed to love you. Pushing aside everything happening in her personal life, there's no doubt that Cat on a Hot Tin Roof would have been a turning point for Elizabeth Taylor as an actress. But it would never again be possible to push aside what was going on in Elizabeth Taylor's personal life, if it ever had been. MGM rushed the movie into release less than six months after Todd's death, a period during which the newspapers and fan magazines had pumped out a steady stream of stories about Elizabeth's never-ending grief. When Liz was spotted dancing at a nightclub with Eddie Fisher in late August, Columnists reported the date as though it was part of Liz's grieving process, as though dancing cheek-to-cheek was part of being each other's shoulders to cry on. This, initially, was what Eddie's wife assumed, too. By the fall of 1959, Eddie had been married to Debbie Reynolds for four years. Eddie was a singer who had become a star thanks to television. Debbie had been signed to MGM at age 17— And she and Liz had been classmates at the MGM schoolhouse, although Liz was always skipping class, and Debbie took it seriously because she assumed that within a few years, she'd go back to real life and become a gym teacher. Instead, she became a star in 1952 as Gene Kelly's singing and dancing love interest in Singing in the Rain. Debbie had been a virgin who lived with her parents when she and Eddie got married. Eddie had been not a virgin. There have been reports that Eddie and Debbie's marriage was arranged by MGM, who had no problem selling the couple as America's sweethearts. But Debbie seems to have thought it was a real relationship, at least for a while. After she gave birth to her first child, Carrie, Eddie never seemed to be around. Debbie desperately wanted another kid, but she couldn't get her husband to sleep with her. Finally, one night on vacation in Italy, Debbie got Eddie drunk enough that he performed his husbandly duties. One time was the charm, and nine months later, Debbie gave birth to her son Todd. When Debbie heard that Mike Todd was dead, she went over to Liz's house and offered to take care of Elizabeth's three children while she grieved. Over the next few weeks, while Debbie was occupied taking care of a total of five children, she knew Eddie was spending a lot of time at Elizabeth's house. But she wasn't worried. After all, Eddie had loved Mike, too. On the eve of the release of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Debbie knew Elizabeth was in New York. She thought Eddie was away on tour, and alone in the house with her kids, Debbie was lonely. She called Elizabeth at her hotel to chat. And Eddie answered the phone. Roll over, darling, Debbie said, and let me speak to Elizabeth. When Hedda Hopper called Elizabeth and asked about the rumors about her and Eddie Fisher, Liz did something completely shocking. She told the truth. Or at least her version of it. I don't go about breaking up marriages, Taylor told Hopper. You can't break up a happy marriage. Debbie's and Eddie's never has been. When Hedda asked Liz if she loved Eddie, Liz responded... "'I like him very much. "'I've felt happier and more like a human being "'for the past two weeks than I have since Mike's death.' "'What do you suppose Mike would say to this?' "'Hedda demanded to know. "'Elizabeth responded, "'Well, Mike is dead, and I'm alive.' "'This was an echo of one of Liz's most famous lines "'in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof,' Or you could say a preview of it, since most of Hedda Hopper's readers hadn't yet seen the film. But Liz would offer Hedda a kicker that was more explicitly sexual than anything in the movie when she exclaimed, What do you expect me to do? Sleep alone? This kind of frank admission of sexuality was too much for Hedda Hopper. She was the opposite of liberated. In fact, she felt a duty to rein in a culture that was clearly going to hell in a handbasket. This is the gossip columnist who once wrote, Whoever invented capri pants had his mind on rape. So, clearly, she was going to make an example out of Elizabeth Taylor. Hopper reported their phone conversation verbatim, and totally unsympathetically, and in doing so, she announced that it was open season on the no longer grieving widow. She had the sympathy of the world after Mike Todd's death, Hopper wrote, but I can't take this present episode with Eddie Fisher. When Eddie asked Debbie for a divorce, Debbie reported to MGM for instructions. None of this would have ever gotten this far during the heyday of Louis B. Mayer, but by 1959, he had long since been deposed, and his successors now jumped to work with what they had. The studio that had decades earlier established itself as the home of family values took the jilted wife's side. Even though the homewrecker was also technically their property, clearly Elizabeth Taylor could and would look out for herself. But Debbie was directed to go through the motions of trying to repair her marriage. With photographers and columnists documenting their every move, Eddie and Debbie went to marriage counseling. The next day, Debbie came out of the house with her daughter Carrie, and when a reporter asked if she and Eddie were separating, Debbie turned to face the cameras and said, He isn't coming home. The next day, she filed for divorce. Debbie warned Eddie that Liz was going to leave him within 18 months. Debbie was wrong. It took more like 30 months. But it was an eventful 30 months. Eddie promised that he'd take care of Liz, that he'd even manage her career just like Mike had. And like Todd, as a dominant personality on the still-new medium of television... Eddie presented a version of how the industry could move into the future, even though Fisher's singing style itself was pretty old-fashioned. Maybe Liz believed that Eddie could step into those shoes Todd had left vacant, but really, the core of Liz's attraction to Eddie Fisher was physical. For the first time, Liz was choosing to be with a man in spite of a lot of reasons not to, because she liked having sex with him. After being married to Debbie who by her own admission was not a very sexual person, Fisher was delighted to be with a woman who had, as he put it, the face of an angel and the morals of a truck driver. While Liz remained in hiding at her agent's house, subsiding on takeout chili from Chasen's, Debbie played her part in daily photo ops designed to show that, unlike the bad girl, the good girl was not afraid to show her face. Columnists like Hopper were inundated with letters, many of which they printed, expressing sympathy for Debbie and disparaging Liz as a tramp, a hussy, a homewrecker. The theory that all press was good press looked like it was getting a real test when Chesterfield Cigarettes, sponsors of Eddie's TV show, was boycotted by irate moralists. The season premiere of Eddie's show, on which he sang, That's Entertainment, was a smash ratings hit but viewership declined steadily after that. Eddie Fisher was the first TV star whose career was threatened by a personal scandal. And as the nasty letters that poured into the offices of Chesterfield and NBC proved, the viewers took this scandal very personally. But somehow, someway, it didn't hurt Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Maybe it was because of the synergy between the gossip and the product. A lot of the terrible things that were being said about Liz in the press like about her voracious sexual appetite, her refusal to play by the rules that applied to everyone else, these were things that were true of Maggie, too. But Maggie made the audience understand them in a way that Liz, in real life, hiding at her agent's house, couldn't do on her own. That the movie was a massive hit didn't solve all of Liz and Eddie's problems, but it did give them confidence to emerge for the first time in late December 1958 as an unapologetic couple. A few months later, Liz was nominated for an Oscar. She lost, but within a month, Liz and Eddie married. And if that wasn't controversial enough, Liz ensured the ire of the many conservative columnists of 1950s America by converting to her husband's religion, Judaism. This was the high point of Liz and Eddie's life as a couple and as a public spectacle. Pretty much immediately, Liz began to lose interest. Eddie's career had lost steam, and rather than fight to regain it, he put all his eggs in the basket of his marriage to Elizabeth. But Elizabeth wasn't interested in any man who was content to be Mr. Elizabeth Taylor, and she started having affairs on the set of her next movie, Suddenly Last Summer, an independent production which Columbia released and turned a profit on pretty much solely by selling it using an image of Liz in a keyhole-cut white bathing suit. Now, two films in a row had capitalized on Liz's real-life image as a seductress. Liz still had one more film to make for MGM, and MGM was insistent that it be Butterfield 8, based on the John O'Hara novel about a so-called party girl, i.e. borderline prostitute. Elizabeth was already resentful of having to go back to MGM for one last contractual obligation, and she hated the script for Butterfield 8. She knew her personal life was being exploited. Really, it was hard to miss. The opening credits of Butterfield 8 play over a naked Liz slowly waking in a strange bed. She puts on a too-tight slip and starts poking through the closet of the wife of the man she's just bedded. Only when she's put on the other lady's fur-trimmed coat does Liz's Gloria find the note and $250 cash left for her by the husband. She pulls out her lipstick and writes... No sale on the mirror, then puts the coat back in the closet. She then selects a full mink for her walk home. The film puts her in two love triangles one between a married guy played by Lawrence Harvey and his Grace Kelly like wife, and the other between Gloria's best friend, a songwriter with a sweet blonde girlfriend. The songwriter is played by none other than Eddie Fisher, and his girlfriend is played by Susan Oliver an actress whose pert-petiteness sets her in physical opposition to Taylor and whose, shall we say, chemistry with Taylor brings to life every international tabloid watcher's imagined confrontation between Liz and Debbie. What did happen to your dress? Well, it's a funny thing. One minute it was there, and the next minute it wasn't. Much like your virtue, I presume. (laughs) Am I wrong? Uh, Somehow I get the feeling that you don't like me. Oh, and I tried so hard to conceal it. Why, Norma? You're Steve's girl. I'm just an old friend. Well, listen, old friend, it's about time Are you decent? I am. You can speak for yourself. When I first saw this movie when I was a teenager, I loved it. I loved the seedy adult world of booze and sex and stolen furs that it depicts, and it cemented in my mind the idea that Elizabeth Taylor was the movie star who, more than any other movie star, did not give a fuck. I think if I got all the way to the end of the film, when Liz's Gloria explained she is the way she is because an older man, quote, taught her more about evil than any 13-year-old girl in the world knew, I probably didn't understand it. But it's still fascinating to watch, in part because it's so crude. By 1960, the code was deep in the process of disintegration, but it still feels surprising how frankly characters talk about Taylor's character's sex life in this movie, and how carnal her performance is, especially given the pains to obscure the real subject of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof just two years earlier. There's probably no way to prove this, but I suspect that the censors allowed the filmmakers of Butterfield 8 to get away with much of the sexual content of the movie because it's all a vehicle to have a dozen actors tell Elizabeth Taylor she's a slut. Everything the character goes through seems plainly designed to blame, shame, and punish the actress who played her. And that was the whole point of having a censorship system from its inception in the 1920s, to show the talent that bad behavior had to be punished. With Butterfield 8 in the can, Elizabeth was free to start filming Cleopatra, the Fox epic which would make her the first actress paid $1 million for a single film. She arrived in London with Eddie and her kids at the end of the summer of 1960, and immediately, things started going wrong. Liz's contract hadn't been finalized, and she refused to work or even to pose for British press photographers until it was. The British press in turn spread rumors that Liz was avoiding them because her weight had ballooned on her recent vacation. By November 1st, when Liz had been scheduled to report for shooting, she was in the hospital suffering what was reported as Malta fever, a type of food poisoning. She was released but then ended up in the hospital again two weeks later with what was reported as meningitis, although that was then revealed to be a misdiagnosis. A few months later, Liz was sick again, a flu this time, attributed to her having partied too hard the week before. Actually, while on vacation in Munich, she had fought with Eddie, taken too many sleeping pills, and had to have her stomach pumped. But then the nurse attending to her one night at the Dorchester Hotel realized that Elizabeth Taylor's face had turned blue. At the hospital, it was declared that the flu had turned into pneumonia, and if she didn't have an emergency tracheotomy to clear her air passages, she would die. You can't stop the British press, or at least you couldn't in 1960, And soon it became international news that the most beautiful woman in the world was at death's door, having an operation that involved a breathing tube being stuck into her neck and that she could be scarred for life. Later, Liz would tell friends that when she was out for surgery, she saw a white light and had heard the voice of Mike Todd telling her to go back, that it wasn't her time yet, but that he'd be waiting on the other side for her until she really did die. When she was released from the hospital after several weeks and flown back to Los Angeles, she was photographed being lifted off the plane by flight attendants, who placed her on the wheelchair she'd ride to her waiting limousine. She told waiting reporters that she didn't know when she'd be back at work. She had to simply rest and follow doctor's orders. Elizabeth had had a real close call, but within a couple of weeks, she was doing fine. And it just so happened that her recovery coincided with the balloting period for the Academy Awards, which took place almost a month to the day after her tracheotomy. She had expected to win the two previous years for *Cat* and Summer and had openly declared earning an Oscar trophy to be her one ambition before she retired. Liz arrived at the ceremony in a green and white Christian Dior gown, hanging diamond and pearl earrings, and no necklace, leaving her fresh tracheotomy scar very visible and unadorned. Yul Brenner called Elizabeth's name, and the TV camera cut to her in time to catch her putting her face in her white, satin-gloved hands. An eternity passed. Finally, Eddie Fisher helped her to her feet and walked her slowly down the aisle to the stage. She kissed him, hard and then floated to the podium she was out of breath from the walk in her weakened state from the excitement and the microphones could barely pick up her voice I don't really know how to express my gratitude for this and for everything I guess all I can do is say thank you thank you with all my heart This is on YouTube, and I defy you to watch it and not feel like you've just been taken to school. I don't know if this is acting, or being, or what. I just know it's the purest example of stardom that I've ever seen, from the greatest whoever was, and that in some sense, this moment is the final nail in the coffin of the studio system as it was. After this... After an MGM star has spent three years bringing to life all of Louis B. Mayer's worst nightmares, and she still triumphs because none of it matters anymore, what power did someone like Mayer have left? We will talk about exactly that in the final episode of this series next week. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. This episode was edited by Henry Malofsky. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, You youmustrememberthispodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at rememberthispod. And if you like the show and want to help people find it, please subscribe to us on iTunes and rate and review the show there. We'll be back next week with the last episode in our series MGM Stories and the final episode of 2015. Join us then, won't you? Good night.